You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob. Greg, good morning, and holy cow. Busy morning. So just to kind of set the stage here, we're recording our intro for this episode on uh, Thursday, March 9th, and we had a couple of topics we were planning on uh, discussing for the intro, but um, this also happens to be the fly-in day for an advocacy event in Washington, and we saw uh, a, a couple of uh, postings from a new alliance of healthcare leaders um, proposing some really significant reform to the 340B program. Yes, we did. And uh, so I, I agree. I mean, we were it's just just everyone's way we, our plan was to kind of really talk about the HRSA follow up audit letters that went out to 60 plus um, covered entities who have been audited before kind of larger, more more child sites and kind of getting to the details there. Um, we, we've got six clients um, that we had at, who received those letters and, and we're working with them to help with the response and and I guess what I'll say is, you know, there'll be probably more information on intent. We don't know what the full intent of HRSA was in doing that, but but we're going to save that for maybe our next opening um, because of the I was going to call it just late breaking news um, about uh, this coalition and this and kind of what um, what we're hearing um, is is occurring today on Capitol Hill Day for um, uh, NAC, the National Association of Community Health Centers. Um, but this coalition that kind of got created and and what and the principles they're trying to put out about reform that's a bigger deal. Um, the second topic we were going to cover, and again, we're going to push because it's not as, I mean, it's timely, but not so timely that it's more timely than this. Um, that's around Medicare, um, managed Medicare repayment, right? So we've talked about in multiple openings about uh, man, uh, traditional Medicare and the repayment that has to occur because of the ASP minus 22 and a half percent. But what do we do about traditional or managed Medicare? And so we, we saw, saw some good insight from one of the law firms, King & Spalding. We'll talk about um, on the next opening because because Greg, I, I'm with you. I think we got to jump on um, this other one pretty ASAP. Yeah. So I mean, we we got a couple of teasers regarding this. You know, th- some some of the good reporting coming out of 340B Report and 340B Health had shared some information to their member uh, bulletins. But um, let's start with th- th- this new alliance. It looks like we've got you know kind of an uncommon partnership in the 340B advocacy space. We've got pharma. And um, NAC coming together to create the Alliance to Save America's 340B program, and they're calling it ASAP 340B. This is uh, a bit unprecedented, right? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, if you know, so we what was being reported was kind of NAC um, and pharma, right? So pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of America plus NAC, NAC as I mentioned. Um, what came up? There's ten additional organizations. Many I wasn't familiar with, but they do appear to be more for. Um, um, underserved populations and kind of more related to grantees than anything else. Um, and so, and there's a community oncology alliance. There's there's some other uh, other groups that have sort of been critical of the 340B program as well. So an interesting group. Um, here's what we'd recommend. Uh, their website is ASAP. So A S A P. Just you know, um, as as you would imagine, ASAP340B.org. Pretty simple. As soon as you go to that main page. Um, if you haven't already read it, uh, you, hopefully you have. But if you haven't, if you scroll down, there's just a there's a kind of a red square that says "Read Our Policy Principles," and that's where you find these kind of ten core policy principles that they've titled "Principles for Ensuring the 340B Program Benefits Patients and True Safety Net Providers." Yeah, Greg, I, I, you read into that word "true" in that in that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it almost needs to be bolded or italicized because I th- I think there's some shade thrown there, and you probably can you know gather that from the absence of who's not represented in this this new coalition. So no acute care providers or acute care advocacy groups included in this uh, in this new partnership, right? It, it definitely feels like um, this was I, I don't want to use too strong language, right? Because because. Yeah. Because I mean, there's there's reasons why um, NAC felt they had to go this route, and some of these other organizations, um, I, I think 
pharma was will you know and, and pharma's have been interesting being part of it right they've taken a pretty well not pharma as a whole but but definitely uh, 21 manufacturers a stance on contract pharmacy and kind of where things are so not sure they really had to to give right they're they're going on a legal battle but but i also think even though legally they, they may be able to win the current challenge it doesn't prevent future legislation from occurring and then you know them being required to do contract pharmacy or some other areas of that are gray in the program that maybe they've been holding back on so so maybe they saw it as, hey, this is sure. If we're probably going to have to give back contract pharmacy someday, what can we get in return? So it's that it's probably a big negotiation, and um, you know what what they'll give some things if they can get some things. And definitely in this uh, these ten principles, some of the things that they're advocating for is definitely a give on the covered entity side. And um, and Greg, I, you know, in, in my analysis, again, it came out this morning, so that's all I've done is read through this thing multiple times. Yeah, I feel, I, I feel like we're I'm cramming for a final here, you know, <laughs> having to talk about this. Just, the, exactly. the, the ink's still wet, you know, on the pages. So, oh my gosh, that's exactly what it feels like. Total crab before we got out here and did this, and you know, the way we work, we publish this as close as possible. This intro, and, and this, of course, this is the ninth, as Greg mentioned, drops on thirteenth. But we got to get this in because our producers have to be able to. Um, our producer Aiden has to be able to. Um, to do her magic and, and and make us sound as good as we possibly can, which which is a super hard task, Aiden. We're super sorry for that. Um, but yeah, here's so I, I did a little analysis. I went through the tenants. Okay, um, negative, positive for hospitals. By the way, nothing was positive for hospitals. I just want to put that out there. They all everything was either negative or neutral. The first seven all negative for hospitals. I'm going to be yeah. honest that the way I see it. The last three were kind of neutral or we knew were coming. And but even what I'm calling neutral is the the claims, the 340 claims data clearinghouse, almost what um, Medicare is trying to create anyway, right? A way to identify what's 340B. I'm gonna call that neutral, even though there's probably some negative aspects for hospitals. Yeah. The um the transparency one's number nine about facilitating public reporting. Uh, kind of negative-ish for hospitals. It's more work, but but it's transparency we knew it was coming. And then the final one was, was rulemaking authority. For HRSA, and I know it's totally taken out of order. It's only because I want to focus on that top seven by getting yeah. these three out of the way. Yeah, the, the, the you know the last the last the last three I think really you know I, I think they're fair in terms of what we've heard other hospital or organizations advocate for. You know, AHA has good stewardship principles, and you know, 340B Health you know advocates for putting together a 340B impact statement. So I don't think they're totally unreasonable. Um, propositions for you know improving transparency in the 340b space agreed agreed and yeah and that last one is you know potentially giving hersa some rulemaking authority in targeted areas so that they can kind of implement some of these things right so especially if there's legislation created then you've got to give hhs rulemaking authority so that, that makes sense uh, i, I yeah. call that neutral although because there's gonna be some pro and and some some cons to to some of the rules they'll make but yeah, let's jump to the top seven because here's the reason. We got a great interview and, and discussion um, coming up um, around the 340 program and, and hiring, uh, but this is so important. I, I want to get through these kind of seven as quick as we can to get everyone aware, give a little bit of our um, take on it, and then uh, we'll, we'll get going on some good content here. But um, yeah, should we just talk, start yeah. at the top? Of the rest yeah, let's of the start, start right at the top. The first, you know, first principles, make 340B a, a true true safety net uh, right. program for, for patients. So somewhat of a vague or, you know, very broad kind of proposition here. Uh, yeah, that word true shows up again. And uh, I, I, so I call this, it's probably a negative for hospitals only because it, that word true seems to be targeting them. Not, yeah. You're right, not a lot of meat in this one, just really a kind of a broad statement, but I think it's kind of setting the tone for the rest of the, the principles here. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what's absent from this um, this particular principle is, you know, really the the current intent of the 340B program, giving, you know, safety net providers the opportunity to kind of stretch those scarce federal resources. Right. Um, again, so it's hard to argue with this principle, but does seem a little bit slanted in the verbiage in terms of, you know, targeting maybe the larger dish covered entities. Right, right. Really focusing on serving low income hospitals and or, uh, patients and and uh, yeah, leaving out the other half of the program intent as it was created by Congress um, back in 1992. So, but yeah. interesting, I think setting the stage for for the next next few ones that come. Yeah, you know, second principle again, really focusing on pass through of uh, 340B savings um, or discounts to patients. Yeah, it, it actually when it lines up with what um, FQHCs have today, right? So if you're FQHC and you get a grant from the from HRSA, um, you're required to provide um, some kind of sliding fee scale for patients who 
meet 200% of poverty level and lower. And now you think 200%, that's really high. It's actually really not very high because um, yeah. the 100% poverty level is really low. So 200% is actually still someone who probably has some medical needs that can't meet their full um, cost of, of their care. So um, this is just saying that, you know, hospitals should should also be required to provide this sliding fee scale. Here's the, I, I don't disagree with that at all. The hard part is hospitals really aren't set up from a financial perspective to do that analysis on every patient. Yeah. So that does mean quite a bit of work for hospitals. So again, it, it's it, I think it's a good thing. It's just operationally, how do you do that with the numbers of patients that hospitals have? That's that's yeah. the hard part. Yeah, huge lift in terms of of execution. Not not that the the principle you know doesn't have its merits, but would require a lot of thought, effort, and and resources put in place by hospitals to to execute this this yeah. type of uh, approach. Absolutely. All right. Number three, we, we've talked about patient definition a lot here on the podcast and our clients and folks that we've had discussions with, you know, across the 340B community have all been interested in 340B definition. You know, they're proposing some updates to the 340B patient definition with some some new safeguards. Yeah, you know, th what's scary about this one is a, a lot of the things that we've done through COVID, telehealth visits, everything, they're no. almost advocating saying, hey, you've got to have this in-person visit, right? So, yep. so so even referral capture kind of goes out of the way on this one. Maybe, maybe not, right? I guess arguably if it's a referral. Um, yeah. When, when um, I think 340B Health may have reported some about referrals and telehealth, um, that language not, is not specifically in number three. So so I guess probably still need to better understand the intent here. But definitely talking about needing in-person visits and that the, you know, the prescriptions or whatever needs to be related to the services being provided, right? So just really tightening up that patient definition. So would remove some of the things that um, FQHC, uh, all covered entities have been able to do around um, uh, telehealth and some other areas. Yeah, I mean, it seems almost like a, a step back because, you know, one of the critiques about the 340B program now is that the, the statute really hasn't evolved in the last 30 years to address how yep. uh, healthcare delivery has also evolved and to, you know, now kind of take a hard stance against, you know, more frequent use of telemedicine, you know, with all the technology that we have and, you know, the convenience that that's provided to patients, you know, it seems like a step back in terms of innovation to kind of handcuff covered entities from utilizing, you know, a, a telehealth visit or telemedicine services as an extension of their care. I agree. I'm, I'm a little disappointed in that one, but, um, you know, I, I think one to tie it up and make that in and maybe it's, hey, they can do telehealth, but they have to have one in-person visit so that, you know, we at least know they're a patient that comes into the clinical location, but that one could be interesting to watch. Yeah. You know, number four is uh, all about contract pharmacy arrangements. So putting criteria together to essentially codify contract pharmacy in 340B statute. And then some limitations here around uh, what they think is, is a reasonable, uh, I guess, you know, scope of a contract pharmacy network. Yeah, I mean, so this one is interesting because it almost feels like it's going to impact specialty pharmacy and mail order pharmacy more than anything else. They're advocating for kind of local pharmacies. Um, and if you think about some of the manufacturers in the participating in the ESP program, now we have two, right, Novartis and um, J&J, they have a 40-mile rule. And it's almost like they're going to something like that where they're saying, look, it's, you know, the contract farms are really intended to help patients, you know, locally. So, uh, you know, something like that would be very restrictive because a lot of specialty pharmacy is off-site, you know, somewhere at, X distance away. I also think about the health systems that that will use a shared pharmacy, right? Where they might have a specialty pharmacy servicing their their retail pharmacies, and you kind of lose that that those drugs. And the hard part is sometimes specialty is the only way that you can get some of these prescriptions. So now you're eliminating the ability to do charity care on specialty prescriptions in some cases. That's that's going to be a tough one. I think there's some unintended consequences of of the language they're using there. Yeah, again, I, I think this doesn't really look forward in terms of kind of projecting what the the future of pharmacy service delivery looks like, you know, in, you know, in our country. You know, we've got consolidation in the community pharmacy world, you know, independent pharmacies have been closing down. There are pharmacy deserts in many of these rural communities, you know, such that they may not have access to pharmacies within, you know, uh, 40 miles or however, you know, they, they may have to go a, a significant distance from their home or from where their provider lives um, in order to access drugs. Limited distribution scenarios where manufacturers have limited the access to some of these specialty drugs to, you know, maybe a few different specialty providers that are not even within your, your covered entity state really, you know, handicaps your ability to 
um, you know, access drugs if you're, you're limited to the geographic window of your uh, of your covered entity. Well, and, and then you've got, you know, Mark Cuban's um, cost plus like Amazon's mm-hmm. pill pack. I mean, right. And so I think as these become more popular and patients are using those services and, and maybe they still need some kind of charity care service or, or program. And that's now, again, a lot harder for covered entities to even help offset some of that cost. If, if they can't get 340B and if that's the best mechanism for some of these patients. So yeah, I agree that's that's gonna be another tough one that I think has unintended consequences for patients that will be negative. Number five, so this is provisions around protecting uh, covered entities from being pickpocketed from from third parties. So they're talking about uh, you know PBMs and the risks currently that or the threats. I guess we're seeing in the 340B space with regard to PBM siphoning 340B savings from from covered entities. Yeah, so I so I you know I, for, I forgot this one is isn't a negative for hospitals per se. So definitely a negative for PBMs. But this is something we've seen coming as well. Congress um, is kind of had a had a you know a microscope on PBMs. We're seeing a lot of states pass non-discriminatory language around PBMs and payers. So so not a negative for hospitals in this one. So I do want to highlight that since I made that initial statement that the first seven were, this one's probably um, favorable for hospitals. There's also some things in there about for-profit companies, right? Seems like in addition to PBMs, their target, they, they specifically list pharmacies, right? And my guess yeah. is uh, arrangements that have percentage arrangements or, or take a large profit. Third parties that do the same, right? If you're a TPA and you're charging a lot of money for a service, their argument is, look, the services you provide needs to be close to the, you know, make sense for the time and effort, but mm-hmm. uh, not uh, not taking advantage of the program. Um, so, you know, it doesn't mean that companies can't, um, you know, that uh, like we provide services, for instance. It doesn't mean we can't charge for our services, but I think they're really trying to say, how do we keep these savings with with the program and with the covered entities um, yep. versus seeing these large, you know, revenues on some contract pharmacies, uh, you know, statements as since they're public entities. That's, I think that's some of the concern there. Yeah. Number six, another uh, principle that that really, I think, is targeted towards large hospital covered entities. And this suggests that there needs to be some updating and strengthening of 340B hospital eligibility requirements. Yeah. Now, this is the one that we want to point out. Interestingly enough, is where they mentioned does not include um, the non-rules. Wait, there's a double negative there. It does not. Did I say that right? It does not include non-rules. Wait, that's I need board to help me translate that. Um, but basically leaves critical access hospitals and so community hospitals alone. But for the other hospital types, really talking about different hospital eligibility requirements, maybe something tied to the number of low-income patients they have. So not sure kind of what that would be. I guess it could be looking at the S10 on a cost report or some other measurement of, of charity care and low-income patient populations versus the dish percentage, right? So they're looking at possibly changing that. Yeah. Number seven, um, address standards for 340B child sites and subgrantee eligibility. So really, you know, taking their proposals in number six and extending them to departments that hospitals have offsite that may need to be registered as child sites based on HRSA's current, um, you know, requirements around offsite facilities using 340B drugs. Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple of things to read into this one. One is child site hospitals, right? So I think that makes sense for child site hospitals that you're looking at some of that same eligibility requirement per hospital. And um, that one's tough um, because, you know, sometimes a newer, smaller hospital may not have that that particular dish mix or I guess whatever they're going to change it to for charity care, but they're new, they're integral to hospital and they're growing. We don't really know what their patient population is yet. And so a uh, child site hospital, you know, it's you know, and sometimes they don't track that dish percentage or whatever it is separately. So I, I think that'll be interesting. But there's a second component to this as well. They kind of got into, um, and also child sites shouldn't be areas that only do infusion. Now, yeah. you know, hospital-based clinics. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I, I think that they almost want to go after the infusion centers that hospitals have added, especially if they're adding some external from their main four walls. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But you know, arguably that infusion alone, most infusions aren't just infusion. There is clinical service being provided there. So so we'll have to see how that plays out and if that gets included or not included, but definitely going after child sites for sure um, in this case. Yeah. All right. And then we talked about eight, nine, and 10 being fairly neutral, you know, the data uh, clearinghouse. I mean, that, that, you got to think that that's a necessary evil if CMS needs to capture, you know, data to scrub drugs from their inflation rebate penalties, transparency out of number nine, and enforceability. HRSA um, number 10, again, fairly, fairly neutral, but lots of things for hospitals to go back at and look and discuss with with government affairs folks in terms of some type of counter advocacy measure, right? 
Yeah, and and I what I'm I I'd, I'd like to end with um you know uh, the Senate Help Committee is is the main uh, committee over on the Senate side, um, Energy and Commerce with Health being the subcommittee for the, the House of Representatives. There's a lot of members on both sides. Well, mo the the House definitely has a lot more members. Please make sure if you're a hospital or a covered entity that you if you have an advocacy team that they're reaching out and saying hey here's here's where we have some issues with some of these recommendations. So as legislation is be created. How do we make sure it's crafted in a way that does make sense, that does allow for some necessary change, but at the same time doesn't isn't overly prescriptive or impactful to hospitals? Um, because hospitals and health systems are running in the red more than I've ever seen in my career, right? In my, you know, yeah. 20 plus years in, in healthcare. And and that's scary that now's the time we're basically going to attack the 340 program and start pulling money away and make things even more difficult for hospitals. I think we start losing hospitals, to be honest, and that's scary. That's yeah. that's impacting the safety net of the of the country. So I think we've got to be really, really careful here. Time to refresh the uh, the 340B blog, Rob. I think, uh, <laughs> I think we've got to put this down to paper. What do you say? Yes, yes. I, I start, interesting, I, I know we're out of time for this intro. Apologize, we're probably gonna go a little longer on this um, podcast, but I think the content was necessary. Sometimes we just gotta do it. But yeah, I, I, it was my turn for the blog article, which I don't get to do as often. And it was supposed to publish, I was gonna publish it two days ago. And then we got the notice from 340. I was like, oh, hold the phone. Um, and then this morning, so it's gonna publish today. So we've got a nice blog article on legislation. I, I'm only highlighting that this exists and a link to, to this, um, since I didn't want to make it a dissertation or, or second thesis, uh, right? So it's getting pretty lengthy already, but hopefully that, that'll drop if you're interested in just kind of reading a little bit more about the legislative landscape, that, that'll be available shortly as well. All right. Well, good catching up with you as always. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come on the other side of the break, we've got a, a guest with us, Leah Marsland. She's a pharmacy leader and 340B subject matter expert out of uh, the Southern Florida region. She'll give a little bit of her background and we're going to talk about building 340B resources and establishing a, a highly functioning 340B oversight team. So um, stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendBend Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendbend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're here with Leah Marcelin. Leah, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. First, tell us a little bit about yourself. Nobody goes to school with aspirations of being involved in the 340B program. So tell us how you stumbled into work uh, with this really important pharmacy program. So I uh, did my HSPA residency at UNC uh, back in 2013, 2015. And part of the program is you have to do a thesis substitute. And in searching for a topic, stumbled along 340B um, and ended up assessing the impact of a 340B quality assurance specialist that they had on their program. And through all of the research and all of the work that I did there, made some great connections and um, fell in love with the 340B program. We're happy to have you. I think really pertinent topic for pharmacy leaders now, um, particularly with regard to, you know, right-sizing the, the staff that's needed for managing a 340B program. I think, you know, historically I've kind of encountered this, you know, particularly with maybe hospital leadership that's not intimately familiar with the 340B program, sometimes underappreciate the the amount of resources and the effort that goes into running a compliant program. There's, I think, a misconception sometimes. You just register for the program, you set up your accounts and your accumulator, and 340B kind of works on autopilot, and there's really no additional need to um, invest resources into overseeing the program. And we all know those of us that are at least working in the 340B space know that, that that's not the case. So glad to have you here to kind of talk a little bit about different strategies for building out uh, a 340B compliance team. Rob, I'll start with you though. You know, I think this is something that comes up in discussion when we're working with clients and trying to help them identify, you know, what's the right size of resources for a given covered entity, where, where do you look for either industry norms or some type of ex external benchmark data for determining an FTE resource need for a covered entity? Yeah, you know, we, Greg, we've been doing this for a while. Um, 
at uh, Spendman and Turnkey before that, where we we use some of the old benchmarking data that, that we receive from Apexis and 340B Health and even um, AHA put forth this benchmarking data where they asked a variety of questions. Some of them were related to well, how many FTEs do you have for your mixed use setting and how many beds do you have, right? So they kind of um, stratified it based on bed size, which is kind of a surrogate marker for how much inpatient or how many outpatient administered drugs you're gonna be administering in your hospital. Although it's not always true, I always tell people they really need to kind of look at all factors um, because bed count doesn't always mean everything. How big or busy is your infusion center, right? You may may have a small infusion center just doing um, non-chemo-based, oncology-based infusions, or you might have a massive oncology-based infusion center, lots of monoclonal antibodies, right, a lot of high-cost drugs, and, and, and you might be running a physically separate inventory. So I think when it comes to the mixed-use side, you really need to take a look at your entire setup to really see, well, you know, is it going to be just one mixed use accumulator that we just have to manage, right? Maybe that's just one FTE. But if you start talking about clean site purchasing, if you have, you know, nuclear medicine doing 340B purchasing, if you've got, um, depending on how your systems are set up, if you have a lot of manual corrections and things like that, if you have a lot of direct orders, right? All these things come into play. And then if you're a health system now looking at, okay, do I have a system resource to manage some of these Kind of higher compliance risk areas and or, or are we going to use local resources so i really think it's you do have to look at it a case-by-case basis but we do like to look at some of those um previous it's again years old now but data that came out around what are other hospitals doing how many ftes do they have for that mixed use setting um, that would be true for fqhcs and grantees as well if you're administering drugs and you need to make sure you're dedicating some part of a resource to monitoring those administered drugs now not all grantees do so um, there might be cases where now you're just focused on in-house retail and contract pharmacy. So I, I like to go through the same process where those, those previous studies do have some benchmarks around, you know, how many contract pharmacies do you have and how many FTEs does it take to manage that many contract pharmacies? Some of that's going to be dependent on how many um, samples of monthly auditing you're going to be doing per contract pharmacy or per, per TPA setup. But, but, you know, I think it's taking that really kind of really um, – kind of approach where you're looking at your data, looking at how much or how big your universes are and how much time it's going to take to not only maintain those systems, but then to do the self-monitoring of those. And then, you know, a lot of TPA systems, especially mixed use, have, have a lot of crosswalk maintenance, new NDC maintenance, working with buyers to make, you know, what happens in drug shortages, you know, all these things, direct order compliance where you're uploading data, you know, also compliance with um, consignment and factor products. So, so again, I think Use some of that benchmarking data if you're working with a firm. Um, a lot of, you know, especially if you're working with us at, at uh, SpendMed Pharmacy, we have some of this work. We can help you with that analysis and see, you know, here's what we'd recommend based on your size and scope. But, but that's it. I think objective criteria is the best way to go. Objectively look at what do you really need to maintain a compliant program and also to be able to maximize your savings at the same time. Leah, any other, um, you know, variables that you look at when establishing your your need for FTE resources, either for 340B or for other pharmacy services? So I think Rob hit the nail on the head with everything that he had mentioned. The only thing that I would add to that is, you know, accounting for the um, extra projects that may need to happen as a result of whether it's, you know, what may come out of audits, opportunities for improvement um, in how you're managing the program. That often comes up and takes time away um, from our team members when we are, um, you know, looking at how they're managing their day-to-day. Um, other things that I would think about when trying to expand our 340B team is, you know, when I came to Baptist, one of the very first things that I did was I started to educate our leadership on compliance and the importance of it and how complex it is to manage a compliant 340B program. And so when it came to asking for additional FTEs um, at the end of the day, it was a lot easier to try to get those through because I would go back to what I was educating them on, the importance of making sure that we run a compliant program. And then these are the FTEs that we needed in order to achieve that goal. Um, And if anything, you know, as we would look at our savings, then I would turn around and say, if we want to maintain these savings, you know, and we want to um, make sure that we're doing that appropriately, we need these FTEs to support that. You know, along with that, um, what I like to do is is try and package because it's it is so hard, right, to justify the compliance side because it's not cost savings. So I like to try and bundle those two together and say, okay, we need this for compliance, which is, which is cost avoidance, right? We could be on the hook to pay back savings. We could have either part or full removal from the 340B program, especially for GPO prohibition risks. So we need to make sure we're compliant. So there's some you know cost avoidance there 
I also like the packaging, but we also need the resources to optimize, right? We, we can pick up on drug shortage waste or making sure that the right accumulations and multipliers are in the mixed use system. We can look for areas of opportunity outside of pharmacy, you know, like the clean site type purchasing processes and better contracting alignment with, with uh, pricing changes and those types of things. So, so if, sometimes I like to recommend if, you know, a lot of financial or CFOs or operational leaders are looking for that cost savings as well. So mixing in cost savings with compliance so you have soft and hard dollar savings during that pitch sometimes can help get those FTEs approved. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like, you know, especially through COVID, you know, the the need to go out and ask for resources is really sensitive subject for a lot of health systems, you know, razor thin margins. But given all the focus on 340B in the news and some of the, the mainstream articles like we saw out of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times kind of maybe highlighting some of the bad actors in the 340B space. I think it's probably easier today to compel hospital leadership to invest in resources to, to make sure you're really operating your 340B program uh, compliantly. So if you're, you're fortunate to have you know uh, the support of your leadership to go out and begin to staff up a 340B team, you know, that, that's one challenge, but another really significant challenge is really you know, recruiting 340B talent. So what kind of tools or information resources are out there that 340B managers and 340B program directors need to leverage in terms of initiating the recruiting process? Rob, I'll start with you. Yeah, that's... Um... You know, I mean, that's something that we we do. We we have some of our own job descriptions that we've created that we can share with with our um, clients um, for different roles, right? Whether it's a 340B leadership role or a 340B kind of um, analyst type role. Um, I, Pexis has some job descriptions as well, which can be helpful. Um, but the bigger thing is kind of where we've kind of learned over time. You know, we used to shotgun and and do. Uh, LinkedIn job postings and Indeed job postings, and then also 340B employed. So, um, you know, I do think you get some of the better candidates from 340B employed and then secondarily LinkedIn. And then third, Indeed, we, I think we struggled with Indeed on our side for hiring um, 340B team members, but love 340B employed. They don't charge very much. So not that no, no financial relationship to uh, 340B health and that service, but we do like it because a lot of people are engaged in that service. Not sure. I'm curious to see how Leah recruits on her side. Yeah, so we so when we created our job descriptions, we utilized some of the same tools that you mentioned, Rob. We used the Apexis job description templates. Um, I also reached out to my 340B family, and so I, I do have a close network of 340B leaders across the country where we do bounce a lot of ideas off of each other, including sharing uh, job description templates. So um, we utilized that when we created them. Um, I use LinkedIn a lot to look for potential 340B talent out there, as well as we have this 340B collaborative um, where we share job postings and resources as well. But really where I have been able to grow my 340B team is through our um, internal resources. And so we have a technician career ladder um, and then the ladder for my team so i oversee our pharmacy business affairs team and so the technician career ladder then feeds into to my team and so if we have um, high functioning technicians that are really passionate about pharmacy and they're looking for that next step they're the pool of individuals where i've been very fortunate to get a lot of my talent from um, and so we bring them on board and then we utilize different educational tools like uh, pexis's uh, tools as an example to then educate them on the 340B program and because some of them are so high functioning um, in their roles as technicians whether it was a buyer or some other position a systems analyst um, they already do have some exposure to 340B prior to coming onto my team. I actually love that that um, you guys have those collaboratives and connections. I, I think those are fantastic and I love that you have a career ladder. Um, you mentioned you're in your H HPSA Residency, and for those that know, it's a, a health system HSPA, uh, health system pharmacy administrative residency, typically two years, and a lot of times they incorporate master's degrees and and a thesis or a project based. And in in my uh, HPA, I actually did pharmacy technician career ladder, and I, we did have 340B as one of those senior levels because, uh, you know, I think the the point you're probably making there is that you need to have a strategy within your pharmacy 
to be able to pay your 340B analysts kind of what they're worth. Otherwise, they will probably go somewhere else if you're just paying them as a pharmacy technician. So we had this, the, one of the higher tiers was for these kind of pharmacy technician specialists. 340B was one, you know, 340B leader, buyers, they all should be in these higher tiers getting paid more because they have more expertise. And, and I think that's critical on recruiting is that you do get the right pay scales. Um, and, and if your organization is very rigid on those pay scales and you just don't have that, you can even consider using um, compliance pay scales. We've, I've worked with uh, clients who just couldn't. And so we said, well, can we use a compliance pay scale? I know that means they're in a different job description for the organization, but it allows us to get to a pay scale that makes sense for these highly specialized positions that require you know, really um, hands-on people with good attention to detail they can understand the program because I think as all of us know, 340B is a special niche area that it's not easy for everyone to grasp. So if you have a good pharmacy technician or a buyer that can grasp it and gets it, that's that's someone you want to keep a hold on and make sure you develop them within your system. So love that you've got that set up. It's been a great satisfier, right? Because this is a career for the technicians. They have uh, a pathway at which they could stay within pharmacy for, for their entire career and continue to grow. Yeah, I mean, the career ladder certainly you know, uh, an, an absolute necessity if an organization wants to, you know, try to cultivate employee satisfaction. You know, I think another thing, and we're, we're seeing this debated across multiple industries, not just 340B and not just pharmacy, is, you know, d different opinions on the merits of on-site versus remote opinions. And I'm curious from both of you, if you have got any opinions on whether or not, you know, remote positions could satisfy an FTE deficit need that a, uh, a hospital has in order to, to manage their 340B team. Rob, maybe you're a little bit biased because you've been essentially managing a, uh, a remote-based team for a number of years now, but what are your thoughts on on-site versus remote work for 340B specialists in the covered entity world? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm actually curious to, to hear from Lee on this one because, you know, different health systems or organizations kind of have different philosophies here, right? A lot of uh, health systems post-COVID are kind of going to return to work policy, but some aren't. Some are allowing their 340B teams to stay remote. And, and so I think this is definitely where we've seen a lot of changes. And I'll, I'll say improvement with the flexibilities of remote work for 340B teams um, across the country uh, during COVID, now post-COVID, where some are saying, you know what, we, we actually don't even have office space for you. The office space you had is now gone. Someone else has it. So they're continuing to let teams work remote, right? Those are some of the clients that we work with. And, but I think, it's a, it, I think this is a potentially ideal position where you can do majority of your work remotely, or at least from a remote location. Um, you, know, you might have to be able to drive in or, or, or on occasion go, in, go into the pharmacy for specific training or education or to go look at something. But I do think a lot of it can then be be done remotely, which does open up the pool because a lot of our clients are saying, hey, we, we've had a job posting for a 340B analyst for months, haven't really had a quality candidate with experience. And so, you know, they think they're going to have to go with the, let's grab a good pharmacy technician we have and, and um, train them up or, um, you know, get them up to speed with 340B. And so that's, so I do think that remote option is a viable one if your organization allows it. So yeah, curious now to hear from Leah if, if uh, her organization allows for remote work and, and what her thoughts and philosophies are on that. Yeah, so we allow for remote work and today my team is hybrid. And so a majority of them um, work from home most of the time. They'll come in maybe one day a week. Um, just because I had more difficulty with the remote work, I really enjoyed having my team there. Um, I oversee not just the 340B program, but procurement compliance, pharmacy charge management, and pharmacy finance. And 340B kind of spans across all of that. And, you know, going from having everybody on site, we had this really collaborative um, environment within my team, to then everybody going remote. Um, it was a little bit of a transition for me. My team didn't miss a beat. They kept going. Um, but, you know, I missed that collaborative, you know, being able to see everybody's faces. But they, they've done a great job. And I think that as long as you take the time to um, put together solid infrastructure with that remote work, um, it, it can really work and solve some issues, you know, especially if you're having you know, difficulties recruiting and getting the right talent into your, your 340B team. And, you know, we do little things and we've tried things over the past, you know, two years, you know, trying to find the sweet spot between do we have daily meetings, do we have, 
weekly meetings, you know, how much time do we meet together to recreate that collaborative environment? You know, when, when we onboard somebody, depending on their skill set, if they're coming in from the health system, they already have a uh, baseline um, knowledge of 340B. We may require them to come on site in the beginning just to and make sure we're filling in those gaps. Um, if it's somebody that has no knowledge of 340B or not enough knowledge about the health system, we might ask them to come on site for the first 90 days so they can go to uh, the covered entity that they are going to be taken care of if they're a 340B analyst or maybe they need to go around and meet individuals and have some on-site training. Um, but after those 90 days, as long as we can make it work and you know they have a solid uh, place within their area of residence that they're going to be working remotely from. Um, it, it seems to be very well, and the team seems to really enjoy it. Yeah, I think you know, considering the possibility of you know allowing for some some level of remote work, I think really expands the the denominator of potential candidates that you can find for for your open positions. A lot of the clients that we've talked to and covered entities that we've um, worked with, you know, the, these these hospitals are in very you know, rural areas and, and, you know, it's just a lot, not a lot of people, you know, interested in the open positions that are available. So if you can cast a wider net and think more progressively in terms of uh, allowing for, you know, some type of remote work or hybrid approach to the work environment really gives you a greater number of options to, uh, to chase down for, for these open positions, you know, but again, Rob, some folks are going to run into a, a scenario where they're they're just it's going to take them time to fill these positions. What are your thoughts around outsourcing 340B work, at least as a temporary measure, while you're staffing up? Yeah, it's it, you know it's it's something that we've started seeing in in the um, kind of in the 340B space is that there just aren't enough 340B analysts to go around, and sometimes a hospital or health system's in a spot where they need a little bit more resource support, but not maybe not a full FTE and partial FTEs are kind of tricky to hire. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure who else provides it, but, you know, at least at Spendman, if there's any needs out there, we do provide a, a staff augmentation service. And it wasn't one that we sought out, hey, this is going to be a great service, all these things. It was just over time, we had so many clients saying, hey, we're trying to hire, especially during COVID, and we're struggling right now. We just aren't getting quality applicants or we're not even getting any applicants. And we have the opportunity to hire um, some staff that, that uh, you know, are moving or, you know, during COVID or just job changes. And so we were able to pick them up as, um, as analysts on our side, and we can provide some of that monthly support. So, right. So especially when you're in, in the middle between either A, not having enough uh, need to hire for FTE, or you're just, you're hiring, you just can't find one, or you've got someone on an FMLA for a period of time. So you don't want to, re- want to replace that position full time using a firm that has some staff augmentation that can really, you know, knock out your monthly contract pharmacy audits or your monthly mixed use audits or, you know, maintain or, you know, support your ESP uh, program if you're sending data, right? That's that's a huge lift. We've talk, talked about it quite a bit, but you might not be resourced to do that. Um, so finding someone that can help um, is one one way you can do that, at least short term, um, so that you're not hiring a full FT that you may not have a need for full time at some point down the road. Yeah, and you can even parlay that engagement into onboarding of a new full-time resource if you find that you need, you know, more more full-time resources available to you. You, you know, kind of you know, learning from the the, the expertise of of you know somebody like Spendmend who's going to you know provide some temporary staff augmentation. I think is a, a great transition for onboarding new staff, especially if yeah. there's you know limited opportunity for for leadership to step away from their day-to-day responsibilities to teach people up on the 340B operations. Yeah, we still, I still run into pharmacy directors still doing the monthly audits. And, you know, and, and one thing we learned and and uh, you probably learned as well in your residency was we, you know, as pharmacy leadership, we always want people to practice at the top of their license. So having a pharmacy director, a pharmacist doing monthly audits that a, you know, a pharmacy technician can do wouldn't be the best use of their time, but sometimes that's the only person left to do it. So they're just doing it on their extra time. And that's where we strongly recommend, even if you have extra time, devoted to something else that's more meaningful, that's gonna impact patient care in your organization. You know, let's figure out a different way to do this type of task that doesn't require pharmacists to do necessarily. So, but if I can, I wanted to circle back, Leah said something actually really important. 
if you're thinking about remote work, you do need to make sure you have structure in place, right? I, I think for us, it works well because we have an output, right? Our staff have to produce a monthly report or an, an annual audit report or the, these measurable objective tasks. If, if the things you're having your remote workers do aren't that measurable or objective, then it's going to be a little harder to manage remotely. So um, I think making sure you have that structure in place. And then the, the important thing is having those touch points. I think without having the ability to see people in person, I think you run some risks where you don't know if people are deteriorating, you know, from a uh, socioeconomic or or some other, you know, mental um, illness type thing. And so, and especially, you know, people working from home where they don't have that social interaction, it does impact some people more than others. And so I love what she said is trying to set up more meetings to create that environment where, hey, look, we're connecting. You know, we even do it on our Monday meetings. We encourage all of our teams on our Monday more meetings to to go on video. Um, partly because we want to see and everybody is more engaging, but also we want to make sure everyone's okay, right? Sometimes if someone's not getting up and not getting ready and, and taking care of themselves, they'll start becoming visible kind of, you know, in in those audio or video uh, kind of catch-ups. And so I love that, that idea, probably a bigger topic, but, but Leah mentioned it and I thought, gosh, that's actually really important if you're considering remote employees, make sure you have a mechanism to keep in touch with them, to, to be able to check in with them and also to measure their output. So you know if they're not just, you know, not getting out of bed for entire days at a time. And when you think about HRSA's transition during uh, during COVID from on-site visits to remote, they're moving back to, to, to on-site visits now. So you've got a lot of 340B teams out there that have been primarily working remotely or now, you know, maybe for the first time coming back into the hospital, you know, to support a, uh, a HRSA audit on site. And that could, you know, that that could pose a, maybe a, a, an uncomfortable dynamic if, you know, folks aren't used to interacting with one another on a regular basis. So you want to make sure that you're kind of cultivating uh, a sense of collaboration and community amongst your 340B teams so that you can, um, you know, just be functional, but also, you know, handle, you know, the the stress of uh, working on site with uh, with a Bazell auditor through a hearse audit. Well, that and, you know, pre-COVID, one of the things that our team used to do is we used to go on site monthly. So we have a, you know, one-to-one or one-to-two relationship between analysts and covered entity. And that analyst gets developed, you know, great relationship with the buyer that's there, the operations manager and what have you, just that, that whole team at the covered entity. Um, and it, it was a challenge, especially in the beginning, because now that analyst was no longer going on site. Um, and we were able to leverage for a while the relationships that were already built but we had to think of new and innovative ways to continue that relationship. So even though the analyst isn't on site, that they're looped in appropriately to anything that could possibly uh, touch 340B. And, you know, if, and, and we had a HRSA audit come in, you know, it, it wasn't so much anxiety to prepare the team that, yeah. hey, HRSA is going to be here, whether it was my team or whether it was the team at the covered entity. And Leah, that's that's a great transition to the next question that I have. Both both you and Rob familiar working in large health systems with numerous covered entities, and and I feel like it, there's always a debate around when you're adding resources to the 340B team. You you know what are the factors that go into determining whether you allocate resources to maybe a corporate service center um, for system level standardization of 340B oversight, or to the local covered entity. Um, it, to kind of support the needs for, or the need for, for boots on the ground in terms of institutional knowledge at the hospital. Leah, start with you. Different thoughts around system level support versus local support when building out your 340B expert team. Well, I've always been a fan of having the standardized system level support. Um, I think it just helps with making sure that, you know, as the leader of the 340B program, right, overseeing it, um, from a corporate perspective that I'm able to drive the initiatives, right? There's something that we need to look into within, you know, one TPA system for one covered entity. The likelihood that we need to look at that for everybody um, is there, right? I want to be able to have that full picture view. And so I like it when it's at the system level, um, but we really, really focus on those analysts or our 340B program coordinators really, really having a strong relationship with the covered entities that they work with. So it's almost like they have that boots on the ground experience, right? We, we train the staff that anything that can possibly fall in these areas, 
just we have a, a an email group just send it over to that email group so your analysts can be aware and we can provide feedback if needed and if not that's okay we'd rather overshare than undershare um, and so you know that's worked well for us um, and it's just taken a lot of time and effort to make sure that the covered entity is educated and they share with us everything that uh, could possibly come under the 340B umbrella. Um, and then my analysts and coordinators then work on their relationship with the, the covered entity and the key stakeholders there. Yeah, I, I like that model. Um, you know, I, I think for a long time, I kind of felt, gosh, each hospital needs its own resources because of the accumulator and understand what's going on with the buyer. But I've seen so many health systems. Now, if you're an individual hospital or just a couple hospitals, that still actually make, make a lot of sense. But when you start into a health system role, it's kind of what, what Leah has, definitely what I ha we had at Intermountain, um, you know, and Greg, same for you at uh, UPMC, uh, your time there. I, I think the system approach has definitely some good economies of scale and some efficiencies. And, and I think, you know, having a team kind of match at that level where they're coordinating efforts and then. I like what Leah's saying. What what you need if you're not going to have resources at each individual hospital is those coordinators having a deep connection with the buyers, right? Because that's where the the most supports needed is. Someone needs to be able to maintain the the crosswalks and the accumulators, understand those nuanced areas, drug shortages, direct orders, consignment, all these things, clean site uh, purchasing. So you know, having someone if you're going to use a system approach to have direct responsibility for a hospital or multiple hospitals, and then where they're building those relationships with the buyers. So when they have questions on the crosswalk, okay, here's what I'm seeing. What are we actually using, right? If I, I used to say, well, I prefer them to be on site because they can walk the shelves. But the reality is, even walking the shelves doesn't do you that much good. You just really need to talk to the buyer. Those buyers on site are really your key conduit for information on what's going on with actual drug utilization. They're, they're, those buyers always seem to be the, the go-to person. So I think a health system team with specific responsibilities per site or assigned to a site that build those relationships is really ideal. And again, if you're smaller, then you, you might consider a more hybrid model um, or someone at corporate's kind of, or one person's taking the lead, but you know each individual hospital has a resource if you're only one or two or three hospitals. But anytime you get large enough, I think that corporate structure actually makes a ton of sense for efficiencies and probably a, a overall a lower number of FTEs because you can operate more efficiently. Yeah, and, and you mentioned something, Rob, about walking the shelves. And so, you know, we've gone in our health system, we've undergone a lot of transition over the past few years to the point where now it's probably easier for us to do something like utilize the technology that we've implemented to run reports, right? And which reduces the number of people that need to touch something to run a report of, you know, purchase history and what's in, you know, all of our ADCs and what have you versus utilization and look at it that way versus, um, you know, what may have been done in the past, you know, back when I first started in one of our smaller, smaller hospitals that didn't necessarily have all that technology in place where they would probably be more beneficial to walk the shelves and kind of see what's going on. I remember one institution I worked for very, very early on, they had, you know, sticker methods still going on. And, and then you needed to have somebody that was more on-site than more remote and like a corporate type of role. It absolutely depends on the capabilities of the hospital or health system. Yep, I agree with that for sure. Leah, you mentioned education of of new staff earlier. It's critical, you know, to make sure that staff are, are are functioning properly, you know, keeping you in compliance. But you know, education of 340B stakeholders that's going to come up in the Q and A with with HRSA during audits. You, you've got to have a plan, and you need need to be able to articulate how you educate uh, key 340B staff at the covered entity. What what are your thoughts around uh, a, a strategy for maintaining competency for folks working in the 340B space? I think there's no time where education on 340B stops, right? We're always learning about, you know, how can we continue to improve our knowledge of the 340B program and um, how we implement that knowledge, right? How we run our programs. And so specifically for my 340B team, um, I make sure that all of them, you know, if we have somebody new or what have you, they've completed 340B University on demand. If they haven't done so yet, um, if they, that they've done the, uh, 340B operations certificate with a PECSIS, so we make sure that they get that certification, as well as some of my non-340B team members that work very, very closely with the 340B program, because I want them to understand when their little alert needs to go off um, to them saying, hey, wait, I need to loop in the 340B program. 
um, in regard to you know whatever it is that they're working on. Um, in addition to that, because I think it's always ongoing, you know, I encourage the team. We have standards of depending on what role they have, how many webinars they should attend, but we have them attend webinars, whether it's put on by Apexis, put on by 340B Health. I know Spendman puts on webinars. Um, in addition to like a rotating uh, schedule of who would attend, you know, 340B Coalition versus 340B University. Um, and so we try to encourage that as much as possible, whether it's through, you know, standard, hey, everybody needs to attend this many webinars per year, or based on, you know, budget availability, sending people or team members over to, um, you know, 340B Coalition meeting as an example. But then we also take the time because I think you learn a lot when you educate others. And so I have my team do a lot of the education for our 340B stakeholders throughout the organization. And depending on the role of the individual um, and, you know, how close or how far they are from the 340B program, that dictates what kind of education that they receive. Um, so some of the roles that we have, for example, a pharmacy manager from one of our uh, retail pharmacies, they'll have 340B education that's one-on-one -on -one upon hire. And one of my team members will provide that education with the oversight of our 340B program manager. Um, in addition, we'll do 340B topics that are quarterly buyer retreats. So they consistently, you know, on a regular schedule, um, get very targeted 340B education, um, as well as annual education that's directed towards either leadership um, or general staff. And, and we have it built in with our um, Baptist Health University, so we can track, okay, this are all the individuals that have completed, you know, this type of educational um, uh, services that we do, as well as any ad hoc in-services to a specific team. If we notice that, you know, there may be uh, particular questions that are coming up or something that we identified, we'll create uh, that, an ad hoc in-service. And again, I have the team really provide that because just in Preparing that, it kind of reinforces what they already know. Um, and something that I like to say is every engagement is an opportunity to educate. And so, you know, even through 340B Oversight Council meetings that we have, we, we try to take the time to provide, you know, little tidbits of education throughout that meeting as well. Fantastic. Rob, we're, we're bearing down on the Winter Coalition. What's the pitch to send staff to Coalition for some 340B enrichment? Yeah, you know, I, I, for me, when I was on the front lines, the 340 Coalition, I love 340 University and I and had the opportunity to, to teach for three years doing that. And so I really love that. And so I'll definitely recommend people attend that. And of course, at, prior to every 340 Coalition, there's a 340 University you can attend at no additional cost. I mean, travel costs, but no additional cost to attend. Definitely recommend that as part of it, but the coalition itself to me is just critical, right? We have two a year. One's coming up here in less than a month, a few weeks actually, and then the other one's going to be the summer coalition. And I just I strongly recommend if you have the financial budget to to send staff to either one of those if possible. Um, you know, I know both would be hard, but because it's not just that there's great educational topics and sometimes and there's so much to pick from, and it's all 340B. So you just got to kind of focus on your areas that you have. Um, kind of jurisdiction over. And then on top of that, it's the networking, right? It's just meeting other similar people to yourself and creating those networks that you can draw on. Um, and, and you know, like Leah talked about before, you, you've got a coalition of similar like-minded health systems or health uh, or 340B leaders that you can create your own kind of groups and that you can bounce ideas off of and share information. And so that's a great place where you get to meet those people is that coalition and the various events and CEs and everything else. And also a great place to just, just learn. Um, learn learn legislative updates and there's always good speakers and I Leah pretty much nailed the education thing so I didn't have much more to add other than in addition I, I think it's another great place um, in part because if you if you get approved to speak then your the cost for attending is waived at least for the conference fees so uh, I think they still do that they used to do it before I, I guess I should clarify that <laughs> we put it out there but um, but you know, it's an opportunity to go. And a lot of times organizations will allow for you to go to a conference if you're speaking and got approved for speaking. So they'll cover that travel cost. But I definitely recommend that because a lot of organizations are doing great things. And I think it's good to get the word out of, of the positive things you're doing or things that you're experiencing that could help other people. So so again, you get a lot of um, uh, sessions from Frontline, 340B, 
people, um, you know, like Leah, who's who's sharing some of the expertise they have, just like she's doing on the podcast today. Rob, I can't stress how important it is to have that 340B network. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, FTE resources, right, and, and filling in gaps on your team. You know, that's a great place to get individuals from. But even for yourself, you know, I have I have a great network of about four to five people that whenever I need a gut check on something that, you know, I'm thinking or, or want to do or what have you or, you know, just want to throw some ideas out there, I can go to them and we can you know, brainstorm or, or, you know, I can get their opinion on, hey, this is what I want to do or this is what I'm thinking and, and have that, you know, really great conversation. And, and I usually walk out learning so much afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the, the greatest benefit that I've, I've gotten from Coalition is just the ability to, to network and, and build contacts in both the 340B and the pharmacy world. And, and really, you know, networking is the kind of the impetus for us talking about FTE resources. Let's throw a, a plug out to a, a client that we worked with, Amanda, Amanda Plowman from um, Fairbanks up in Alaska, reached out to us at, at SpendMen wanting to know if we'd be able to help her um, advertise for a couple of uh, open FTE positions that she had and was trying to recruit for and was able to connect her with with Leah and get her involved in the collaborative. So Leah, I'll give you a chance to plug the uh, the 340B collaborative that that you guys are running. Yeah, so the 340B collaborative was a, a group of us, um, oh gosh, I want to say maybe about five plus years ago now um, that came together. I remember we were at a 340B coalition meeting and we said, hey, it would be a great place for a, a great thing if we could create a safe space for covered entities to just kind of talk about things that are going on in 340B and ask some questions and throw around some ideas. And slowly but surely over the years, it grew to where I think we averaged somewhere between 150 to 180 um, individuals on the call every single um, month. Uh, so it, it's, been a, it's been a great place um, to ask questions, to connect, um, you could find people that have the same type of TPA as you do or the same or similar, um, you know, makeup of your 340B program and, you know, just have a 340B friend. Um, so if you are looking to join, um, I'm sure there'll be my contact information somewhere. Um, you're happy to get an email and I can add you to that uh, calendar invite. Excellent. Well, this is great conversation today. Really appreciate your insights, Leah. Rob, as always, love hearing uh, about your experiences as well. Before we step away, though, um, we've got spring right around the corner. Spring's my favorite season of the year. Weather's getting warmer here in Pittsburgh. My birthday's in spring. I want to ask both of you, what's your favorite season, season of the year and why? Leah, I'll start with you. I would have to say the summer. Uh, I'm from South Florida, and so it's pretty much summer weather all year, but um, things just slow down a little bit, at least for me during the summer. And so we do a lot of time in the pool, a lot of barbecues. And um, my eldest is now in kindergarten. And so we have the whole summer vacation thing going on. Um, and so I'm looking forward to all of the travel that we'll, we'll be doing then as well. Summer in South Florida is hot, <laughs> maybe too hot for me. Yeah, it is very hot. <laughs> I agree. But I'm used to it. <laughs> I've been there. I've been to Orlando in the summer and it was humid hot. Um, I'm, I'm from being from Hawaii. I'm, I'm used to the heat as well. So I definitely don't like winter uh, as nearly as much, although I try and make the most of it with, you know, going up to see the slopes. But I'm a spring guy, too, because we're coming out of winter. You know what I love? It, maybe this is corny. but I love the flowers. Right. We don't in Hawaii. We don't have the same kind of seasonal flowers. We just always have flowers. They're, I guess, I don't annuals or no perennials. I'm not sure. I'm not a gardener. Um, my wife would know. But what, what I do like is when all those trees pop all those colors, like in D.C. where you have all the cherry blossoms and all that stuff. So I love that time period because everything smells good. You're coming out of winter. You're feeling the warmth and the sun, and it's not too hot yet. Um, so I do love spring spring the most. Yeah, I mean, the, the weather's getting better, at least up here in the north. You know, the, the foliage is turning. The, uh, you know, baseball season starting. I've always thought of spring as kind of the lead up to being off of school. So definitely like this time of year. All right. Well, Leah, thanks again for joining. We will make sure to put your um, information in our show notes so that if you're interested, if you're listening and are, are interested in joining uh, Leah's 340B Collaborative, we will make sure we get you connected. Um, Rob, again, thanks. Nice catching up with you. 
And I think we'll call that a wrap. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Hey everyone, it's Greg. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening to the podcast. We love hearing feedback and suggestions on topics that you think would be important for us to cover. So reach out to us via email at 340bunscripted at spendmen.com or on our social media pages if you've got ideas. Also, just a reminder, the Spendman Pharmacy team is going to be at the 340B Coalition Winter Conference later this month in San Diego, California. I'll actually be supporting a hearse audit that week, so I won't be there, but you'll find Rob and the rest of the 340B experts on our team in exhibitor booths 319 and 419. Make sure you stop by to say hello, chat about all the great content that's up for grabs at the Coalition, and maybe grab a Utah chocolate truffle to go. Also at the conference, our very own Heidi Larson will be presenting at the Wednesday morning breakfast session. It's the Lessons from the Field Part 4 at 7 a.m. that day in the San Diego AB room. She's always got great insight into 340B program compliance, so I encourage everyone to join her session. And if you're not able to make the coalition conference this year, don't worry. Rob and I plan on doing a full recap of our team's experience and insights gained, so stay tuned in April for lots of hot topics. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.